You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host this week. My name is David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Where else but Houston, Texas? With me this week, like all the rest of them, is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you this fine October morning, sir? Uh, I'm doing all right. It doesn't feel much like October. It got up to 86 yesterday. <laughs> supposed to get up to 89 today. So, uh mm-hmm. You know, it is still uh, toasty in Georgia. Was well, it cool last week, Nathan? Um, I, I think it stayed down in the low 80s, yeah. Oh, because I, <laughs> I was in South Carolina, and it was, I don't know, 75. Oh, oh man, that sounds nice. It was 70 here yesterday, and I was complaining about it. <laughs> it got down into the low 80s uh uh, at some point last week, and it, and, it, and it was the most wonderful thing in the world. Well, the, the person who's complaining about 70-degree weather is <laughs> Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, Michael Farmer. How are you, sir? Well, pretty good. It's not going to be 70 today. Yeah. It does well, feel like fall here. All the, almost all the leaves are already off the trees. Yeah. All the basic white girls are drinking their pumpkin spice lattes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I've heard I've heard rumors of the pumpkin pumpkin spice lattes around here, but but it's uh, our our demographics are a little bit different. It's not doesn't have quite the same dominance, I imagine. <laughs> well, this is episode one ninety nine. We're approaching the the bicentennial, which uh, we'll be uh, posting next week, uh, along with a number of other interesting uh, interesting episodes from the rest of the network. Are we announcing that, or is it a surprise? Let's announce that something's going to happen next week. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. But I would recommend all our listeners who aren't already subscribed to the other shows on our network to go ahead and do so. We ain't saying it's a crossover, but we ain't saying it ain't. Yes. So with with that, that coy teaser... Um, dear listeners, uh, we'll we'll proceed on into this week. Isn't Coy Teaser the the uh, co-host of City of Man? Um, <laughs> oh shoot! I don't think I don't know that you're wrong. <laughs> Excellent. So this week our topic is museums, as promised. Last week we had a feedback episode because um, Michael had other obligations, but this week we're returning to um, the topic we mentioned previously, which was uh, museums. It it, it grew really out of a a trip to the uh, Houston Museum of Natural Science that my wife and I uh, took for her birthday, which was uh, an awful lot of fun, but it kind of got me thinking. And uh, got her thinking, too. And as I was 
tossing around uh, ideas for for this particular episode. And my wife, my wife said, "Hey, I like the museum idea," and so that's what we're doing. Well, first we'll turn to you, Michael. Could you tell me about the etymology of the word museum and whether that helps us at all track the history and purpose of museums? Uh, yeah, it does. It it comes from a Latin word uh, that means library or study. But before that, it's based on a Greek word that means like temple to the muses. Oh. So that's uh, the, the museum. And uh, so it, it certainly suggests that a museum is a place where you see the work of the muses, which would be primarily artistic works. So that natural history museum you went to last week, at least by the classical definition, could not be called a museum because mm. it doesn't have to do with the work of the muses, but rather with the work of the gods. Ah. Uh, well, there were some uh, some artifact sections in there, so you know maybe maybe some muses would get a shout out, but right, but also dinosaurs, so. So not, well, I not, mean, maybe you could say that the uh, the the people who put together the dinosaur bones and like stuffed the animals, maybe that's the work mm -hmm. of the muses. What now? Who's, I mean, the, who's the muse for uh, taxidermy? <laughs> <laughs> Is it Cletus? <laughs> Cletia, um, muse of taxidermy. Ah. Uh. We, we got to make that happen. There needs to be a music text there. <laughs> Excellent. Well, anything that we want to pitch into that, uh, Nathan? Uh, only to say that, you know, the museum as a concept, when you see it in uh, ancient books, I mean, tends to be something more like a sort of philosophical society than it is a mm -hmm. display exhibit sort of place. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the, the very few mentions I've seen, you know, seem to indicate that that's where thinkers and writers went so that they could sort of bounce ideas off of each other. And it's interesting because I, I, I have seen in a few instances here in the last 10 years, uh, some museums, uh, mainly in the Midwest, I mean, trying to go back to that to some extent to where they'll have, you know, visiting writers and visiting poets and things like that to come in for mm -hmm. roundtable sorts of events. So. Uh, it, it's interesting that that, you know, etymology didn't really go away, uh, entirely. I mean, it's something that still can be reclaimed. And many college art museums have lectures from, um, from literary figures and people mm -hmm. from the arts and politics that it's a, it's, it's a space to hold lectures. So at mm -hmm. the university of Minnesota, I would say about half the visiting writers who come in end up lecturing at the Wiseman art museum. Mm-hmm. So, so like the the Olympics, or like theater, or frankly, like horse racing. This is another one of those things that the ancient world passes along to us with religious connotations. Kind of like I, it's not like the the concept of the and maybe I'm wrong about this, but my impression is it's not like the concept of the museum has this unbroken line. I think it's just a word mm. adopted by the people who were putting together the first modern museums. Mm -hmm. But I understand that's the next question and probably mm. something <laughs> for Nathan to answer. <laughs> well, writing on that excellent segue, mm. uh, Nathan, how did museums come to be associated with artifacts and relics of past civilizations instead of just places for displaying and performing the arts? Right. 
there are really two big European moments uh, that lead to the modern museum. One of them is the Renaissance. Uh, you get, you know, the, the early versions of the Vatican Museum. Uh, some of the museums in Southern Europe uh, become dedicated to collecting sculpture and other kinds of art uh, mm. that survived from the ancient world. Uh, and it's really part of that same intellectual movement that starts to idolize Virgil and Homer and sort of the classical texts also comes to idolize, you know, the classical architecture and sculpture and other kinds of visual arts uh, from the ancient world, from the classics, right? Mm. Uh, mm. The other big one, and, and this one is even more interesting and even more complex, is the you know, it, it happens, you know, roughly during the same span. You could say one that follows from the other. You can say that they're happening at the same time. And that is the intercontinental empires of Europe from the last 500 years, give or take. Mm. Uh, so it becomes a, a point of national pride or sometimes a point of personal pride uh, in the case of private museums to gather up things from Egypt, from uh, ancient Israel, to gather up things from... Mm. Sometimes even, you know, the uh, sort of savage civilizations of the New World and have them on display so that people can come and look at something that is old and alien and, you know, sort of spurs the imagination that way. Now, the the notion of a public museum that, you know, people can actually come and visit uh, who are not personal friends of the curator uh, seems to have its roots somewhere around the uh, French Revolution. The founding of the Louvre was right there in the 1790s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, I mean, it's it's a 19th century phenomenon to have public museums to which people can come to see interesting stuff. I mean, you know, the Louvre and the Smithsonian are pretty much children of the same historical moment in that respect, sort of that late Enlightenment, early nationalist period. Where, you know, and, and for that matter, the, uh, the British Museum as well might have existed before then, but it really becomes a cultural fixture about the same time that the Elgin marbles make their way up there from the, you know, revolution in Greece. Uh, and, you know, it, it becomes a point of national pride more than personal pride to have these collections that people from off the street, simply by virtue of their being in New York City, or in Washington, D.C., or in London, or in Paris, can come in and look at. Mm. Well, and a poor boy like, you know, Keats, who couldn't afford to, you know, kill his gap year and, you know, a grand tour in Europe, Mm -hmm. actually bouncing around Rome, can nonetheless moon over Grecian urns. (laughs) Yes, indeed. indeed. (laughs) In the the British Museum. Mm -hmm. Michael, are are there any moments that I uh, missed there? No, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, the The connection between museums and imperialism is very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rise of Egyptology, which basically comes with Napoleon's conquests. You know, oh, and, what's the fellow's yeah. name? Champion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Champollion. Champollion. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, you, you yeah. know, you know, he he uh, changes American literature. There's a very interesting book by John Irving called American Hier Hi- not John Irwin called uh, American Hieroglyphics, uh, mm-hmm. which is all about how American writers in the mid 20th century get obsessed with hieroglyphics mm-hmm. because of oh, because of Egyptology. Uh huh. 
yeah. that's a little bit off topic, but it do, it does go to show you that I mean these these changes in how museums operate and the the new material you get there really it, it's a it's a sea change in culture, mm-hmm. kind of the way like the internet is is a sea change in culture in the sense that new information is available to people that wouldn't have been available to them before. It's a democratizing thing. Mm-hmm. Now it's right, obviously right. less of a sea change than the internet, and less democratizing. But there you go. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's some more important democratizing moves that I think we need to make. I mean, e- even in the you know 17th century, you you've got sort of private gentlemen uh, of an antiquarian bent. You know, the kinds of people who assembled big libraries, um, like you know Mr. Cotton. Um, mm-hmm. You know, also getting inclined to collect old things as well, but these are these are private collectors, and it's and it's definitely a rich man's thing. Mm. Um, but you've you've also got along with the museums kind of opening sort of at the top end of culture, so to speak. You also have the uh, the cabinet of curiosities or the the sideshow. That starts to travel around with uh, that that travels around with carnivals, um, things like that. Um, you know, mummies would would get carted around to little towns, you know, in the Northeast and the Midwest, and people would come to see the mummy. Um, one of the uh, one of the, actually one of the scriptures in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints was based on uh, Joseph Smith going to see a mummy and being asked to interpret um, a document with hieroglyphics on it that came from the mummy. Hmm. It would be an interesting study to see, you know, the late 19th century in America is this time of an incredible explosion of esoteric religions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I would be very interested to know if, if Egyptology and hieroglyphics played a big role in others besides uh mormonism so if any of our listeners know of such a study mm-hmm. let us know if oh not, yeah, yeah somebody yeah. write it and tell me about it yeah well, well go to an old upper class cemetery and look for the mausoleums built in the egyptian style huh. um they, they they got them you start to see pyramids cropping up in cemeteries um things that look like temples with those kind of like lotus topped pillars yeah, um, yeah. Sphinxes. Um, you start to see them show up. And of course, all I can think of is the uh, the huckster from the beginning of the movie version of Wizard of Oz. <laughs> he's, he's bringing wonders from Isis and Osiris. Yes. Well, it, yeah, it needn't all have been real. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, my wife and I are museum people. I mean, that's that's our term for it because I don't know of another term for it. We're museum people. Um, I suspect, I suspect that you gentlemen are also museum people, but not everyone is. Um, some of our relatives, for instance, you, you could not pay them to go into a museum. So what makes a museum person? I I don't know. Uh, (laughs) 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 My parents are not museum people. I can remember going to only one museum growing up and it was the, uh, the, Air and Space Museum in Huntsville. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know what? Though we we visited Washington D.C. and went to some of the Smithsonian's. Now that I think about it, but certainly we did not go to museums with any regularity. I grew up in Atlanta, and as far as I know, have never been to the High Museum of Art. 
Really? Yeah, it's just not. It's not something. It's not something my family did. And the only time I think I've ever been to an art museum with my parents is they visited here and we took them to the Minneapolis Institute of Art. About which more mm-hmm. later. I, I don't know. I'm. I'm I mean, the temptation is to say it's smart people who are into museums, but that's not fair. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's lots of smart, thoughtful people who don't like them. Museums require a great deal of concentration, mm-hmm. um, and that's why. I mean, if you've ever been in a museum more than two hours, you know how tired you are when you come out of it because mm-hmm. you're focusing so much. It, I, there's, there's something, there's something in a museum that appeals to a person's sense of order. Because everything is so expertly arranged, you know, there's no accidents in a museum. Everything from the architecture to the placement of the paintings or the exhibits or what have you is there to direct you in a certain way. And yet within that order, there's also an openness because it's, you know, it's not like there's one path you take through most of these museums. You can start anywhere you like and end anywhere you like. So on the one hand, there's order, and on the other hand, there's room for you to make your own order. Um, mm. But that's more about why a museum is appealing than what sorts of people it's appealing to. And mm-hmm. I, I think that question probably demands us to break up museums into different types because the sort of person who's going to be drawn to a science museum for example might not be drawn to an art museum the sort of person Mm -hmm. who's drawn to a museum like the durham museum of western heritage in omaha is not the same sort of person who's going to be drawn to the walker uh the walker museum up here which is contemporary art so i i don't know how to answer your question david i'm sorry do (laughs) do you have something in mind No, I, I, I'm just I, I'm I'm just curious because uh, I've observed that when when family and friends come to visit us or whatever, um, and we pitch the museums, some people can't wait to get in the museum, and other people are like, yeah. Not so much. Whenever we go anywhere, the, the two places <laughs> we always go are a local used bookstore and a museum. Um, I'm not sure I've ever been on a trip with my wife where we didn't do one or both of those things. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I have a hard time understanding people who aren't like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe it's just uh, maybe it's just snobbery. Can 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 museum people be cultivated, Nathan? Are you are you are are you a museum person? Are you trying to turn your children into museum people? I'm a museum person. I'd say so. Yeah, and I and I. In my own experience, I mean, you know, it, it is largely a function of childhood experience, although obviously mm-hmm. Michael provides an obviously obvious example of a uh, late-life convert uh, <laughs> to being a museum person. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that part of it has to do with a notion that your everyday life, you're going to work and you're, you know, going to church and you're going to little league ballpark or wherever it is that you go from day to day in a given week, uh, has a certain range to it and that it is good to go to places that expand that range a little bit. Mm. So, I mean, I, I can imagine folks who, uh, don't have any particular interest in that just because they're content with the range of stuff that they already experience. You know, I mean, I, I know my own kids, you know, enjoy going to museums just because, of the novelty of it, of seeing things that they don't normally seen. 
see, seeing things that they don't normally see. There we go. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, as far as um, people who aren't museum people, I certainly know them, but I'll, I'll, I'll admit that I haven't spent a whole lot of time trying to analyze that. I, Like I said, <laughs> I mean, my sense is that, I mean, it probably has something to do with just a contentment with how things are as opposed to a a drive to experience things beyond. Mm. Maybe they don't like the fundamental museum experience, which is hearing footsteps echo down marble hallways. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. That's possible. Well, there's a kind of quietness about a museum. Some museums. Well, yeah. some, some museums. Children's museums being the exception. Yeah, well. Which I, I spend a lot of time in those. So yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I'm not putting children's <laughs> museums down. Well, right, the, right. Yeah. Well, in the museums that have uh, recorded visual or, or audio displays for, for those who, who don't want to kind of settle in and read all of the signs. Mm-hmm. Um, but even yeah. those are often on headphones. They mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Often. I mean, um, it, it, it's weird. We, we talked about the religious roots of the word, and there is something kind of holy about a museum. You turn your mm-hmm. cell phone off when you go in, or at least you should be. Mm-hmm. We've, all, we've all been at a museum when some Jags cell phone went off. <laughs> but well, the, uh, well, what's even worse is when they insist on holding their conversation at full voice without leaving the exhibit. Yeah, you're like, I could paint that. Yeah. <laughs> Have you guys ever seen L.A. Story? No, I haven't. L.A. Story is a Steve Martin movie. It's pretty funny. Um, but he he's you know an L.A. phony, and he goes to he goes to a contemporary art museum with some people, and the shot is like you're the painting looking at him, and he's talking about how sexual it is, and the line I remember is, and all those people watching, judging, like they're any better. You know, he goes on like this for I don't know a minute and a half, two minutes, and of course it cuts, and it's it's like a Rothko. It's just a red, it's just a red canvas. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. So I don't know what's worse, the guy who has to prove his acumen, or the the guy who announces that he could paint that. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Museum movies. So. Nathan, some museums are such landmarks that they get single name recognition, like the Louvre, the Smithsonian, right? They're like Cher. Uh, <laughs> what part do the mega museums play in the kind of overall role of museums in our world? Well, these become sort of cultural landmarks in their own right. And I mean, each one kind of has its own character. I mean, if you, uh, I'm just trying to think of, you know, some other one namers. And I mean, you know, uh, the Guggenheim, I mean, if you go to the Guggenheim, you don't have to explain what's in there. I mean, you just go to it, right? If you go to the Louvre, it's a certain kind of experience. The Smithsonian's interesting because I think of it as having a lot more of a nationalist identity than the other ones, and I could be wrong about that. But uh, More than you know, the Louvre? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I guess because when I went to the Smithsonian when I was younger and it's been years since I've been there, you know, the exhibits tended to center upon the accomplishments of Americans specifically. Ah, uh, okay. So, I mean, it, it was, it was, I mean, kind of a, an exhibit of American greatness more than I think of an art museum being, you know, connected to this country or that country. Now that said, I mean, you know, 
if you're thinking about the British Museum or if you're thinking about, you know, some of the other great world museums, you know, each one, like I said, I mean, kind of has its own national character to it. Uh, and you're right, David. I mean, the Louvre is definitely one of those signature places that people go when they're in Paris because it is the French museum experience. Um, you know, beyond that, the, beyond that sort of nationalist angle, uh, you know, one of the concrete ways those museums uh, influence, you know, frankly, the smaller cities and the smaller museums is a lot of, a lot of times there will be traveling exhibits uh, that go to mm. other museums. And I remember as a kid, and I mean, even when my own kids have been growing up, uh, going to the Children's Museum in Indianapolis when there have been uh, traveling exhibits from the British Museum or from you know, European museums that they ship across the ocean so that kids in Indianapolis can see mummies and, you know, things of that sort. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, the on, on a more, you know, nuts and bolts level, a lot of times they provide the actual material for smaller museums to have special exhibits as travelers. So... Michael, I, I, I have to admit, I have not been to any of the big famous museums except for the Smithsonian. I mean, well, what's your experience been with the the big names? Well, I have been to a couple of them. I've been to uh, I've been to the MoMA in New York and mm-hmm. the um, the Museum of Natural History, the one with the the one with the squid and the whale. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. fighting. Excellent. I've been to the Art Institute of Chicago. I've been mm-hmm. to. Um, What's the what's the big natural history museum in Chicago? I, I can't remember. Whatever the field that is. Museum. The what? The Field the Museum. The Field Museum with mm-hmm. Sue the Dinosaur. I love a natural history museum, uh-huh. by the way, because I love looking at the uh, stuffed animals because uh, I'm a child. <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's something. If you think of a museum as a holy place, the big ones are more holy, right? I mean, th- there is there is really something about stepping into the Museum of Natural History. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're the cathedrals, but there's mm-hmm. also something yeah. kind of impersonal about them. Whereas when you go to a smaller, weirder museum, you feel—I feel anyway—a little bit more like I'm in control of the experience. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. But I would say most of the museums I go to are tent poles in some sense. I, I don't—I've been to a few like genuinely small museums. And there's a kind of weirdness to that too. I remember I went to a Civil War museum <laughs> in Spartanburg, South Carolina once, and the uh, the curator followed me around the museum, talking about <laughs> talking about how the war wasn't really about slavery, you know. Oh wow! <laughs> so you don't want to go too small either. <laughs> I mean, <sighs> I, I, and I think you're right, Michael. I mean, you know, the idea that if you go to a well-known museum there's a certain script that you're supposed to follow the things you're supposed to see. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I mean, in a museum you've never heard of, you do have a little bit more Liberty to kind of discover what's the coolest. Well, and, and Walker Percy talks about this, I think in the last gentleman, mm-hmm. um, that going to a big, a big museum like that, where you're, you're supposed to look at the Mona Lisa or whatever you look at at the Louvre. It's, yeah. it's almost a guarantee that you're not going to see the Mona Lisa in a, in a kind of existential sense. So um, I went to I went to the Art Institute of Chicago last last year, and uh, I I got in line to see Edward Hopper's Nighthawks. I really like Edward Hopper. I think he's as closest the closest you get to like an existentialist painter. 
But one of the things that really surprised me, and maybe it shouldn't have, is that a large number of people who saw the Edward Hopper took a selfie of themselves in front of it. <laughs> and that's really weird to me. First of all, there's no reason ever to take a picture of a famous painting in a museum because you're going to be able to get a, a higher quality photo of it in the gift shop anyway, even if it's just a postcard, mm-hmm. you know? Right. But, but I, I was, I was fascinated by this, this idea of the painting as authenticity bestowing artifact. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. The, 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 and it's a very Persian reading, but I, 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 my, my thought at the time was these are, these are people who are insecure in their own existence in some way. And because they know this painting exists, you know, because Nighthawks, they, they have seen it in textbooks. It's a famous painting. Taking their picture next to it reminds them that they're actually alive. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and then it goes up on Instagram and now, and now they're performing it. Right. Of course, uh, if, if you want to take the uh, obnoxious up one more step, Michael, is the, uh, and, I, and I've seen so much of this recently is uh, people will find teenagers on their smartphones at an art museum and take a picture of three or four teenagers on their smartphones in front of a famous painting so that they can, you know, cluck their tongues at the way that kids these <laughs> days are ruining the world. Instead of paying attention to the paintings. Yes, yes. Those awful teenagers who I'm going to take <laughs> a picture of instead of paying attention to the paintings. You betcha. <laughs> um... The art and, then, and then I'm going to post it on Facebook, <laughs> so everyone can cluck with me. <laughs> so, so the big art museums are big for a reason. They've mm-hmm. they've got the money to buy the famous paintings, mm-hmm. and so it, it's hard to recommend you go to New York and not go to the MoMA. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure, sure. There's a whole bunch of wonderful art there that you're obviously you're not going to be able to see anywhere else because uh, other than Duchamp's fountain and works like that. There's only one place to see most of these paintings. I don't know. Mm-hmm. The, the the kind of localist in me feels bad about going to the big museums instead of the small ones. <laughs> but, it, you know, a museum's not a bookstore. Right. I mean, you want to support your local museum, you know, but it's it's not as if, it's not as if the Fields or the Smithsonian or the Louvre is like the big box store instead right. of the mom and pop. It's right? a labor and, of love, just like any museum is. It's right. You know, it's curated. You know, it, it, it's not like you go to the Louvre and you get like production line Mona Lisa's, but if you go to my, you know, your local mom and pop town museum, you get like the real one. Well, in fact, it's <laughs> it's likely to be just the opposite. If your if your local right. museum has a Mona Lisa, it's a copy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the um, what's the the George Washington painting? The is it Stuart Gilbert? The the George Washington painting everybody knows. He painted like four hundred of them or something. Eight? It's not four hundred. It's like eighty. And so okay. nearly every big museum has a copy of the Stuart Gilbert George Washington. Mm-hmm. All right, all right. Interesting. It, though with the, with the little ones, you know. It, it, it makes me think of uh, two, two little ones immediately kind of popped to my mind. One is the Southern Museum of Flight in Birmingham, Alabama, which I went to lots of times when I was a kid. Um, there are some planes, World War II era, some trainers, 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a blackbird. There's a, a, a decommissioned blackbird out in front. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some Korean and Vietnam era fighter jets. But most of the museum is the model plane collection of, mm. I think, just some guy who spent yeah. years and years of his life building model planes with this incredible level of detail. And that's that's kind of really the core. They've got some real airplanes, you know, some some cool ones. But most of it is is models. And, you know, so, so that kind of like that individual effort of that person in the area that then becomes that then becomes the core. And it's not it's not the Mona Lisa, but it is this guy's art. Um, the museum in McPherson, Kansas. Um, uh, the the it has a. Uh, a giant sloth. Right. So the giant extinct sloths that are like these big, like troll sized creatures with giant claws. Anyway, <laughs> in the area, this sloth skeleton was found. All right. So it's their sloth. Right. It wasn't imported from somewhere else. It's not a cast of another famous skeleton. Right. Mm-hmm. It's their local sloth. So when I went to the Houston Museum of Natural Science, lots of dinosaur skeletons. How many of them are actual skeletons and how many of them are like resin casts of skeletons? I don't know. There's basically tell. no complete dinosaur skeletons. Am I right about that? I think I read that. that when you uh, go to a museum, it is always at least partially and often mostly casts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's, I, my impression. That's, what I, that's what I've read as well, yeah. Still cool. Oh, yeah, still cool. Still super cool. Um, (laughs) But there were just so many of them that that you just drown. And and none of them them particularly stand out. And some of them say on loan from this museum or that private collection or whatever. But at the McPherson Museum, there is this one giant sloth. And it is real. (laughs) And it is theirs. It is their sloth. It's kind of getting back to Percy's point. If you can, if you can kind of stumble across one of these things, mm-hmm. you you will encounter it in a way that you won't. If you know your guidebook tells you you have to go see the Mona Lisa at the Louvre, right. I've never been to the Louvre. I have absolutely no interest in the Mona Lisa. <laughs> but I, I do have a story about that, which is they had a Van Gogh painting come to um, come to the Minneapolis Institute of Art. We went to see it, and my wife had this profoundly emotional experience. We're both like Van Gogh. Um, and I looked at it and felt nothing. Like like whatever aura, uh, to use Walter Benjamin's word, whatever aura is being sent off by this painting, you know, got blocked by the particles of the museum in, in Percy's language. I'm really <laughs> quoting a lot here. Sorry. <laughs> And and I, I didn't know how how to feel about that. You you know shouldn't shouldn't I be having an emotional reaction to a Van Gogh painting? But then why would I expect that to happen? Mm. But I do think if I hadn't had to walk down a special hallway to get to it, you know, it was it was actually in like an alcove in the museum. It wasn't with the other paintings. I think there's something to be said for just kind of stumbling across a painting in a museum. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you want to have the experience, you're probably not going to have the experience. <laughs> right. Well, that's uh, 
in in art museums, that's one thing. Paleontology, it's another thing. But we all remember when Indiana Jones, who is everyone's favorite terrible archaeologist, <laughs> um, when he shouts with conviction in uh, its it, Last Crusade, right? It belongs to the museum, right? And then and then like the boat blows up and all the rest of it. Anyway, it belongs in a museum as if that's like this ultimate moral principle. So. When I went to the Museum of Natural Science in Houston, I wondered whether Indy was right because they had a hall of Egyptology and what they call the Hall of the Americas, which has um, South American, Mesoamerican, North American, um, kind of Native American uh, art and artifacts. So Maya, Inca, uh, Aztec, Toltec, all the different texts. Mm-hmm. Um And I wondered whether Indy was right. So what belongs in a museum, Michael, and what doesn't belong in a museum? So um, I'm going to point our listeners to a much more nuanced discussion of this than we're going to be able to give in the next five minutes, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) which is Ideas from CBC Radio. Last year they they had a series of programs called Who Owns Ancient Art? Yeah. So I think you mm-hmm. can get that just through their through their podcast feed on iTunes. Yeah, I remember I would, that series. It's a it's a great series and very interesting mm-hmm. and and th- they really raised some interesting. It had never occurred to me that the people of Mexico might actually deserve Aztec artifacts more than we do. I mean, obviously that is obvious to me <laughs> once it was pointed out. But you know, I'm, a, I'm apparently a cultural imperialist. Um, <laughs> the argument for not giving artifacts to the culture that originally owns them is and they're talking mostly about the middle east um right in in that program the the argument is what if they're not going to take care of it mm-hmm. you, you know it's a it's a war-torn place buildings are being destroyed every day uh wouldn't it be better to maintain the work of art in a safe place where it's going to be taken care of by people who are trained to take care of artifacts rather than sitting in some private collection in Baghdad where mm-hmm. it might not exist six months from now. Yeah. And I, I think that's a genuine ethical quandary um, in a way that like the Grecian marbles are not, you know, the Grecian, <laughs> the Grecian marbles would seem pretty clearly to belong to Greece. Um, although they were brought back during the Grecian civil war, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. So early 19th century, that same kind of moment. Did they mm-hmm. return them? No, that is a point of contention uh, mm-hmm. periodically, I mean, even during our own lifetimes. Yeah, and so, so it, it seems to me that they should return And of course, them. I mean, I, I think it's telling that I know them as the Elgin Marbles, named after the guy who actually ganked them. Right. <laughs> well, but it was a trade, right? We got the Marbles and they got Byron. <laughs> and and actually i think if if the i don't have a dog in this fight i'm not british but mm-hmm. if if the british want to keep them it seems to me they should be giving grecian museums some ancient english artifacts and and like and, and and because the the democratic argument that people everywhere deserve to see these things only works if people everywhere also deserve to see your stuff and maybe that's what they do. I don't know. I don't know enough about how mm-hmm. how those museums work. But I, I get both sides of this argument. 
these belong mm-hmm. to us mm-hmm. versus these are of general human interest and everybody should be allowed to see them. And I probably lean toward the latter as long as that's actually played out fairly across mm-hmm. the board. Now, I don't recommend sending a bunch of ancient English artifacts to um, to the Middle East. I, I mean, obviously you don't want to put them in danger. But if, if the area is relatively safe, if, if we're unlikely to have uh, a civil war... <laughs> why not? Why not spread it around? Why have mm-hmm. maybe maybe the bigger question is why have permanent collections? Mm-hmm. Why, why not mm-hmm. just why not just rotate periodically around um, around the world? And and of course they do. They they loan a lot of stuff. All the museums do. Mm-hmm. We've all had. These- oh sure sure sure. That's that's the only way I saw a lot of the cool stuff I saw growing up in Indianapolis. We've all had the experience of going to a museum to see a particular piece only to find out it's been it's been loaned out to Toledo or wherever. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, uh, there, there's not a simple answer to that question. And, and again, I would, mm-hmm. I would encourage everybody to listen to that Ideas series because they do a great job with the nuances of the question. They have lots of different people arguing lots of different points, and, and most, of them, most of them are pretty compelling. Cool. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, if the if if it's a toss up between this national museum and that national museum, I, I think you're right, Michael. It's a valid conversation to have. I'm a lot less sympathetic to the folks who say, you know, these should be in private collections rather than in public collect- collections. I oh, mean, I've, I've got that I've got that democratic streak going. I realize, but uh, you know, that's really something where I, I think that. Uh, sort of the national treasures, if you will, of a given artistic tradition, I mean, should be on display for the general public to view. I mean, that that's that's something that uh, is down in my bones. I mean, that's why uh, when when Indiana Jones, you know, says it belongs in a museum, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I don't see that as an invitation to a moral debate because, you know, the idea, at least in the, the logic of that movie, is that this guy's going to sell it to some billionaire to keep in a private collection to, you know, show off to his billionaire friends and that, you know, normal people are never going to see this thing. And, you know, that, that, that rubs me the wrong way on a strictly populist level. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Even before you get to the fact that it's, you know, the bad guy and you don't want the bad guy to have the treasure. That's, that's the point of an adventure movie, right? How far are you willing uh, to take your democracy, Nathan? Should, should people be allowed to privately own Picasso paintings? Oh goodness! I I would rather they be in a museum. I really would. Well, what if Picasso painted it for that person's family? I would I would be inclined to say let's put it in a museum and call it the that family room. What about uh, what about in like 1925? Should people have been should people have owned private Picassos then? Uh, before he became, I mean, one before. of the icons of Spanish art, I'd, I'd say it wouldn't be as much of a deal. How far? How uh, far are you willing to take it in terms of icon? icon oh, stats? I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know that I can play the how many grains of sand are in a heap game with this, but <laughs> I'm just, I'm just interested. Is it somewhere around the time his first name falls off? <laughs> well, there's actually a Picasso museum, so. Right, you know, there's a museum that only has Picasso paintings. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I just, you know, I own, I own private art. I own paintings that nobody else owns. But 
Uh-huh. They, are, they are not by famous people. They are, they <laughs> right, are, right. They are not uh, worth uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars before somebody breaks into my apartment to steal them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, Michael. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you're bringing up a valid difficulty there, and like I said, I mean, it's like the old uh, logic puzzle of you know how many grains of sand are in a heap, right? If I take away one, is it no longer a heap? Well, mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, I, I don't know at what point you know how many months, days, and hours a painting has to be famous before it's a piece of the national tradition. And you, you're not, I, you're also not suggesting that they should be forced. To turn over their artifacts, you're saying out of the goodness oh, of no, their no, heart. Oh no, 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 no! I, I would make the moral argument that they should, but I'm not saying that they should be, uh, you know, commandeered. And they should be sold to the museums, right? Not given. Oh yeah, they, they yeah. could be sold. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I mean, those things right, are right. things that people have owned sometimes for generations. But I mean, for instance, you know, after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, when you know people are looting museums in Baghdad and selling them to private collectors. I mean, that does rub me the wrong way. I mean, I think that is a crime against a public culture. No, I agree with that. I, I, mm-hmm. And, and to, to me also, there's a difference between some sort of ancient artifact and a painting from a modern-day painter. Yeah, the ancient artifact would seem to belong much more clearly to an entire culture or to the entire world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though, though some of that in Baghdad did turn out to be curators hiding the stuff so it wouldn't get blowed up and stole. Yeah, point taken. I mean, that's that that goes back to Michael's argument. You know, I mean, if, you know, in 1997, someone could have, you know, taken a, a, you know, a construction crew and brought those Buddhas out of Afghanistan and, you know, made them an exhibit in Canada. I mean, would I go back in time and do that? Yeah, I would. Because, I mean, now they are piles of rubble because of Taliban vandals. Yeah, or what ISIS is doing to religious monuments. Yeah, mm-hmm. what they blew up the to- tomb of Jonah. Is that right? I haven't read ago. about that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, or you think of like um, they made a terrible movie out of it. Although it's an interesting story, the Monument Men, which is a group of American soldiers who went through museums in Europe and saved paintings before the places were bombed. Huh. I mean that's a that's a genuine good, right? I mean they they did a heroic thing. Interesting. Well, that we, we, that actually kind of edges us over into our next topic. Um, it's stepping back from the ethical quandaries. Um, museums are such interesting settings that uh, surely there's some artistic depictions like film or literature that are worth mentioning at this point. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the the monument men, uh, Michael. What would what would you throw in, Nathan? Well, actually, I, I was thinking about this, and I mean, I I actually had to start doing some uh, internet searches for <laughs> museums and literature because I'm like, man, I don't have any stories, you know, right at the tips of my fingers, other than those terrible, terrible. Uh, <laughs> uh, I can't even think of which stiller it is, but uh, the Night at the Museum movies. Uh, that that my kids adore and I I can't watch the second uh, one the second one is good if if only for Amy Adams as Amelia Earhart if you say so man that's a that's a great <laughs> performance from Amy Adams you have a can-do but, attitude and I shall do as you wish also the gonna, Tuskegee Airmen saluting her as she walks by really I was like very strangely moved by that okay all right all right. So, David, I'm going to invert the question and talk about a museum dedicated to literature. 
uh, namely the Shrine of the Book uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem. Uh, this is a fascinating place. I've never actually been there myself, but I've seen photographs. I've read about it. Uh, it is a museum that has on display uh, the major findings of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, famously, it also has security cap capabilities to take all of the artifacts into an underground bunker uh, in case of bombing. Uh, and, you know, most interestingly for me, uh, the whole facility is in the shape of one of the vessels that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in. So, uh, you know, I took a, a, a graduate seminar in Dead Sea Scrolls while I was in seminary and, you know, just became fascinated with that find and with the process of, you know, translating them in the museum and, you know, got righteously indignant along with the rest of the class at all of the idiot Dan Brown conspiracy theories surrounding it. Um, and, you know, that's, that's one of those museums I'd like to visit sometime before I die. Uh, just because, I mean, I think it is one of the most significant finds in biblical studies in the last 150 years easily. Mm. Very cool. What Michael? do you got, Michael? Uh, a couple. Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood has a really hysterical set of scenes set at a museum, uh, a museum, as it's uh, as it's said in the novel, because it's you know it's a uh, they they use V's instead of U's. I believe it's mm -hmm. based on a museum in Atlanta near the zoo. But I okay. Can't, I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, you have a uh, you have a mentally challenged character named Enoch. Emery, who becomes obsessed with the notion that the uh, the next Messiah is in this museum, and so he 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 breaks into it and steals a baby mummy and presents it to the uh, to the failed prophet antihero of Wise Blood. So I, I think that really plays on the idea that the museum is a is a holy place and and perhaps mm. the only holy place left in a de-Christianized society like uh, like Enix. The other one is uh, John Updike's Museums and Women, uh, which is uh, pretty straightforwardly about his experiences visiting museums with women. First, the the museum and the uh, art museum in Reading, Pennsylvania, with his mother, and then uh, a, a museum at Harvard, I think, with his wife, and then the Metropolitan, uh, the MoMA, with with uh, with a with a lover and it sets up both museums and women as these things to be looked at that also kind of, I, I don't know, change your life in the looking. So they're both active and passive simultaneously. Mm -hmm. How about you, David? Uh, two. And they are emphatically, uh, uh, lowbrow popular literature. Um, the first is uh, Relic by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. Uh, came out in the late 90s, and it, there's a killer monster, but it's set in, it's set in a museum. Um, it's set in a museum of natural history, and a, and a lot of the kind of the back and forth in the plot is as the museum administrators are trying to um, kind of host and stage these kind of special exhibits in order to boost, um, in order to boost visitors and uh, fundraising and and all this kind of internal um, stuff. Uh, uh, 
you know, about how, how the museum functions. And then also the research scientists who are tied to the, um, the, the maintenance of the collection, the ongoing research that's being done in the collection. And what, what makes that interesting is that Douglas Preston, um, one of the one of the co-authors of the novel, actually did work for the 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 American Museum of, Nat- of uh, Natural History. I think it's the American Museum of Natural History in New York. I think it's just the Museum of Natural History. Yeah, okay. I think the American Museum of Natural History is part of the Smithsonian. Well, in any event, no, you're right. Uh, it is the American Museum of Natural History is in New York. Apologies. Okay. Yeah, no worries. Uh, anyway, point point being, the guy who's writing this um, actually worked as a writer for that museum for for quite a long time. He was a science writer. He was a um, kind of a promotional writer, um, and really understood the way the way that the museum worked. Um, I, I really enjoyed all of those aspects of the all of those aspects of the novel. You could tell that someone who loved the museum was was writing it. Uh, the the other novel is called The Eye of Osiris, and this this one's um, about 100 years old. Uh, it's by a, a writer named R. Austin Freeman. It's a mystery novel. Um, the hero is Dr. Thorndike, who is uh, – he's like a forensic uh, scientist. This is, this is some of the earliest forensic science um, writing, this, this – Eye of Osiris was published in 1911. Hmm. All right. Uh, but the reason why I bring it up is that a big part of the, uh, of what makes the plot is the setting of the British museum as a location for scholarship. It's a very quiet place. There are exhibits, people see them, but it's also a place with a big archive of research. And, you know, some of the characters spend, you know, significant chunks of their afternoons at the British Museum, just taking notes, and it and it's presented as this uh, this this quiet sort of haven of private scholarship, you know, open to the public, so that you you find all kinds of eccentric people there who whose research would not otherwise be funded or sanctioned by any kind of <laughs> um, you know official body, but. You know, this is this is where they can go. They can go to the to the British Museum. And one of the plot points is that the British Museum is is designated by law as a proper place for the for the repository of a human corpse because they have mummies there. And uh, anyway, some some of the some of the uh, some of the mystery hinges on whether or not a body has been properly buried or not. And it turns out that being on display in the museum counts. <laughs> mm. So anyway, it's kind of interesting if you want to step back about a hundred years and see, and see the British museum. Um, those scenes in the eye of Osiris are, uh, are that. Well, is there any, uh, any museums that we would want to recommend to our listeners? Um, would we like to pitch a few of those, Michael? I think I have mentioned several throughout this episode that I think are worth your time. Here in Minneapolis, I do love the Minneapolis Institute of Art, which is free and which has a very large collection ranging from prehistoric stuff, well, maybe not prehistoric, but really old like pottery to stuff painted 
20 years ago. And uh, hmm. so it, it's really worth going to. I'd also encourage you to look at your nearby university campuses, many of which have uh, small art and natural history museums that are also mm-hmm. free. Mm-hmm. Nathan? I'll recommend a pair of them. Uh, actually, three of them, I just decided, uh, in the Midwest. Uh, one of them is the, well, you know, we've talked about the Field Museum in Chicago. It's certainly one of the famous ones. Uh, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago is a great, fun one. It was one of my favorites as a kid. Uh, when I was younger, it actually had the uh, exoskeleton from Aliens, uh, which I thought was just wonderful. Uh, but it has a... Uh, a German submarine that you can walk through and see, you know, the inner workings of it. So, I mean, just a very, very cool, uh, very walk through sort of museum. I mean, it's, it's not the, uh, marble hallways and echoing footsteps sort of thing so much as, as it is a bring your kids because they'll love it sort of museum. Mm -hmm. Another one that kind of has that vibe is, uh, one that I mentioned fairly frequently is the children's museum of Indianapolis. Uh, Mm -hmm. this is one that, you know, I pretty much grew up at, uh, I've brought my own kids to it when we visited my parents in Indiana. Uh, it is, I'm not sure if it's the biggest children's museum in North America, but it's certainly among the biggest and just really, really dedicated to thinking about how children in particular can encounter museum artifacts, uh, in a way that is engaging even to a young person. And I mean, the, the great part of it about it is it's a phenomenal museum, you know, the, drawback to it is everyone knows it so i mean it's immensely popular so it's i mean a lot of times you'll go there and it'll just be shoulder to shoulder people the third one um and david hearing you talking about the uh, aviation museum in uh alabama made me think of this one is the wright patterson air force base outside of dayton ohio has a a gigantic aviation museum that uh, my own kids like to go to a great deal uh it's got Everything from, you know, reconstructed Wright Brothers planes, because, of course, their uh, workshop was in Ohio. Ohio is one of, you know, four states that claims the Wright Brothers as their own. Uh, But it's also got, uh, you know, the X-1 that Chuck Yeager flew when he broke the sound barrier. It's got World War II bombers. It's got a replica of uh, the Enola Gay, the famous atomic bomb bomber. Uh, So, I mean, just lots and lots of stuff. Uh, you know, very sort of open area so the kids can wander around and kind of explore and see those sorts of things. So, I mean, I, I, I realize all of my selections, you know, are very uh, kid-friendly sorts of things, but that's the kind of museums that right now at this point in my life it's fun to go to. I, I have one more that I can't believe I forgot. Um, the Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham, Alabama is the, mm-hmm. the most emotionally profound experience I've ever had in a museum. And I've been to the Holocaust Museum. You got, if you're in Birmingham, you've got to go see the Civil Rights Museum. Yep. It's right across the street from uh, whichever church it was that was bombed. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, at one point, 16th Street? Yeah. And, and at one point, you, you walk out of this hallway and into this. I mean, you've been bombarded with these images from the Civil Rights Movement. You walk, you walk out of this hallway and into a room with a giant ex, uh, window exposing the, uh, that church. And uh, I, I don't know how people do that without crying. I, it's, it's so moving. Mm. Yeah. Well, th- th- thank, you for, thank you for citing that one because. That that's that's one that I would pitch to being from Birmingham. It's kind of a vital part of the of the Birmingham experience. 
the Southern Museum of Flight I already mentioned, also in Birmingham. Uh, there's a pretty good art museum in Birmingham. Um, pretty good uh, children's museum called the McWayne Center, also in Birmingham. There's a couple of museums that I'd like to introduce that my wife have really in, and I have really enjoyed visiting uh, in in some of our various trips. One is the Museum of World Treasures in Wichita. Um, it's a, it's an eccentric little museum. It's got a little bit of ancient Greek um, uh, artifacts. It's got a little bit of Egyptian. It's got a little bit of it's got a little paleontology. It's got a little it. It's got a little bit of everything, um, you know, kind of military uh, artifacts from all of the kind of major conflicts in in um, American history. But one of the interesting things that it has is a gallery of signatures. And it's all it's it's just a bunch of famous celebrities, political figures, authors, poets. It's 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 just a collection of signatures. And they're all framed, and they're all up on the wall, and it, it's it's one of those little uh, it's one of those exhibits where you can tell it was shaped around. There was this eccentric person who just their collection forms the core of this, and uh, I, I love that little um, I love the, I love the eccentricity of it. Museum of World Treasures in Wichita. The other is the Saint Photius Greek Orthodox National Shrine. In St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, I mentioned it for a couple things. It's 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 a little it's a little museum that it, that's talking about a Greek colony that was established in St. Augustine uh, back in the eighteenth uh, uh, century. Yeah, seventeen seventeen sixties. A little, a little Greek colony established in in Saint Augustine, and it's it, this this museum is, so far as I know, the only the only place where this little bit of history is really celebrated. Um, so that this is another argument for finding kind of the local and the eccentric, because sometimes you'll find that you know the the history of the of, of a place is more complicated than you knew. And there are these little, uh, there, there are these small stories that sort of fell out of the mainstream story that um, these little museums might, uh, might still preserve. But uh, yeah, the Saint Photius uh, Greek Greek Orthodox National Shrine, National Shrine in, in in Saint Augustine, giving you a little a little story of Greeks in the South. Well, dear listeners, if there are other other museums well known or less well known that uh, you think we ought to know about, and other other listeners as well, uh, you can uh, write in and let us know. Uh, our email is thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com. You can also post on the show notes on our blog christianhumanist dot org when uh, when this episode drops. You can also post them on our Facebook wall. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, also, we appreciate it if you give us uh, good ratings on iTunes. It helps more people discover us as we kind of ascend the great chain of iTunes being. Uh, <laughs> what have we got going on in our next episode? Well, you'll just have to wait and see because <laughs> it's our it's our whatever our surprise crossover episode is. Right, 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 right. 
And then, well, Michael, you, you said that that uh, crossover has already been recorded. Did you announce in that one what's going to come after that? No, so go ahead and do that. All right, so after that, <laughs> it will not be episode 200 because that's going to be the special crossover. But episode 201, uh, we're going to pay a visit to the gentleman that you see atop ChristianHumanist.org every time you come over to our website, Desiderius Erasmus, and we're going to be talking about In Praise of Folly. Excellent. Well, look forward to the surprise coming next time, and then after that, Erasmus. Well, dear listeners, that's all we have time for today. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Amberly Copeland. And I'm David Grubbs, uh, wishing you on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore to have grand weeks and to... Uh, Take heed to the advice of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger.